You're listening to The Vast Majority. Today's episode is brought to you by The New Republic. Our friends at The New Republic have recently introduced The Politics of Everything, a podcast exploring the intersection of culture, politics, and media. The show's hosts are TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and staff writer Alex Perrine. On recent episodes, they have examined how privatization and pharmaceutical consolidation in the U.S. have contributed to the COVID-19 pandemic, the history of polarization and its role in politics today, and how protests shape policy. You can find the politics of everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, let's start the show. It's the vast majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, joined by Jacobin staff writer Megan Day. Hello, Megan. Hi, Micah. So we're talking to Matt Karp today, who is a Civil War historian, and he has an article in Catalyst from the summer 2019 issue, which is out from behind the paywall on the Catalyst website. I'll link to it in the description uh, of this episode. But uh, Matt's article is a really fascinating one. It's about... It's called The Mass Politics of Anti-Slavery, and it's about how we got rid of slavery in the United States, which is, for probably reasons I don't need to explain to listeners, a really central thing to understand in American history. Uh, but also, reading the article, it's so clear that there's so many lessons from the construction of a mass politics to destroy slavery uh, for those of us today who are trying to affect radical change and, you know, move mountains to uh, get rid of, uh, you know, awful institutions that make our lives uh, miserable. I thought Matt's article had a ton to speak to us today about how we go about doing radical politics in the 21st century. Yeah. And I think that you don't have to be a civil war nerd to appreciate Matt's article or to appreciate this episode. You know, Matt is a professional civil war nerd and he's sort of sifted through all of that stuff and collated it and come up with a political argument that's really relevant for us today. And in particular, he's looking at, you know, the way in which the anti-slavery movement built a broad coalition by combining um, the sort of moral, the moral imperative to end slavery with the self-interest of ordinary people, in particular ordinary, you know, working class Northerners, to create, a, like I said, a very broad coalition that had the people and the power to actually muscle through a radical agenda. Um, I think it's 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 also it's good to listen to not just because you'll learn stuff about this era that I certainly didn't know before reading Matt's article and talking to him, but also because we get pretty explicit toward the end about. Uh, the way in which it relates to Bernie Sanders's two presidential campaigns and the political moment that we are in and the attempt that uh, the Bernie campaign made to do something quite similar, which is to make issue to speak to people's material self-interest on the one hand, you know, people's need for like higher wages and union representation and Medicare for all and and, uh, you know, uh, tuition free college and so on. But but also to uh, issue a moral appeal, which I think is, is also critical. I mean, Bernie did say, are you willing to fight for somebody that you don't know? And it's not a moral appeal on behalf of somebody else. It's actually an appeal to solidarity. And I think that there there's um, something similar in the spirit of the early Republican Party that Matt gets to in this conversation that we had with him. So listen on for that. Matt Karp is an associate professor of history at Princeton. He is the author of This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. 
He's working on a book that his Catalyst essay is working towards uh, about the emergence of anti-slavery mass politics in the U.S., and in particular the radical vision of the Republican Party in the 1850s. So here's our conversation with Matt. Can we just start off with you, you know, bigger than your article itself, just make the case for people uh, who maybe aren't super familiar with the Civil War. Like, why should the average Jacobin reader slash listener care about the Civil War? I mean, the Civil War is at the center of a lot of this contemporary stuff. Obviously, maybe we'll get to that later. But I mean, I think it's important to remember that that for the left, for the young left to know and for the old left to remember that the Civil War was the most important and transformative political event and political revolution in American history and a, a landmark in, in, in the world history of slavery and abolition. And so therefore a landmark in the history of labor, a landmark in the history of democratic struggle. Uh, and I think it begins um, by, if we have, by taking the measure of the enormity of uh, American slavery in particular and its position in the 19th century world, it's easy to forget. I mean, this is, I wrote my first book about this, um, but it, uh, and actually these days it isn't easy to forget that slavery was a big deal in American politics and American life. It's, it's something we're, we're, we're coming to terms with. But um, what I still think people might not know is that in the mid 19th century, actually, actually, you know, there were more enslaved people, enslaved, enslaved goods, enslaved products uh, in world history than at any point before, even at the peak of the slave trade, which had come earlier, or at the peak of the sort of geographic extent of slavery, which had come earlier. Uh, in the mid-19th century, right before uh, the emergence of political anti-slavery in the United States, um, slavery actually, you know, in some by some raw economic measures, was stronger, more dynamic, more powerful, um, and uh, therefore certainly more um, brutal and oppressive than it had ever been. Um, and so the fight against this system, um, uh, not just in the United States, but this sort of what some scholars call the second slavery, this sort of resurgent slave system that was producing, um, you know, raw materials for an industrializing Atlantic world. Uh, the fight against that system, I think, represented probably the most significant, you could you could argue, international struggle of the mid 19th century. And it. Uh, the decisive front was in the United States, where the anti-slavery political movement, um, uh, you know, starting and we'll talk about this, you know, uh, moving through uh, electoral politics, succeeded in electing an anti-slavery president. Uh, and then, you know, which triggered, uh, you know, a slaveholding reactionary slaveholding secession and ultimately a war of emancipation, which, you know, also in comparative context uh, was the most second probably only to Haiti, um, the most uh, revolutionary kind of process of emancipation in uh, in the Americas in the sense that it was uncompensated, it was rapid, it was violent, and it, and it was executed in large part through the military presence of former slaves, hundreds of thousands of which joined the Union Army. So um, for all those reasons, and then, you know, and you can add some larger ones about, um, like I said, about, you know, the history of labor and the history of democratic politics and the history of democracy in the United States, um, you know, the Civil War, obviously, in the, in the Reconstruction era, particularly coincided with enormous, the enormous expansion of democracy uh, in, you know, even if in the South, even if it was beaten back uh, after Reconstruction. For all these reasons, this uh, this sort of convulsive era, I think, 
uh, should be understood as, as you know, certainly by the left as a left-wing revolution of sorts, even if an unfinished one, even if a flawed one, even if an uh, incomplete one. But um, it's definitely the best thing that the U.S. has got uh, in its history, I think. So, yeah. You title your article, The Mass Politics of Anti-Slavery. And I'd like to get a definition from you about what mass politics is. And I think specifically, if you could talk about the difference between how abolition came about in the United States versus how it came about in Britain, that would help give us an illustration of what you mean by mass politics. It's it's a vague term and it can mean a lot of things. Um, and in some sense, there was a mass politics of anti-slavery in Britain too. I don't want historians of uh, British anti-slavery to sort of um, come at me. I'm sure like Seymour Drescher is undoubtedly listening to this podcast and is going to write me an angry email. But um but in, in Britain, the fight against slavery and the slave trade going back to the 18th century absolutely involved a certain kind of mass politics in that it was a mobilization of petitions and um, uh, um, kind of uh, uh, various forms of kind of local organizations, speech, speech, speeches, rallies, um, uh, media, print camp, print media campaign against slavery, which involved mostly petitioning the government to end the slave trade and then end slavery itself. Um, but what I think what distinguished American mass politics and the way that I use the term in, in the, in the essay is, um, that it was electoral mass politics in a certain sense. So it involved not just kind of petitioning a, uh, a largely in Britain's case, aristocratic, uh, and mercantile ruling class to sort of do the right thing on a certain set of issues, but, actually involved uprooting the current political ruling class, that is, in the, in the American case, the slaveholding class and its Democratic Party allies in the North, um, uh, by defeating them at the ballot box and replacing them at the helm of the state. And that was a, inherently, in some ways, and you, you saw it with the Civil War, uh, a much more tumultuous and threatening kind of form of mass politics than even then the kind of very impressive uh, and in some cases, you know, considerable working class mobilizations in Britain against slavery, which did exist and had an important impact, inspired the American movement. But in the United States, in some ways, the kind of even the limited window of electoral politics, uh, adult white male suffrage and, uh, and adult black male suffrage in some states of the North, too, uh, even that limited window allowed uh, a, a, a considerably more radical and transformative uh, uh, form of mass politics. Let's talk a little bit about um, Marx and Lincoln, because so, I think that actually helps us understand this concept as well. So Marx was a great admirer of Lincoln, though it also appears that he thought his leadership was somewhat incidental or that Lincoln had impressively made the most of a sweeping political development that was much bigger than Lincoln as an individual. And I'm going to read this out loud from um, from your article for our, our listeners. So Lincoln, the man he wrote, Marx wrote, was without extraordinary importance, merely an average person of goodwill placed at the top by the interplay of the forces of universal suf suffrage, unaware of the great issues at stake. The new world has never achieved a greater triumph than by this demonstration that given its political and social organization, ordinary people of goodwill can accomplish feats which only heroes could accomplish in the old world. So what is Marx's perspective on Lincoln's role in all of this? Tell us about the mass politics of anti-slavery. You know, you reading that again, uh, making me think about Marx. And, you know, that's an interesting line for, for Marx in particular in terms of his own theory of politics. And I know there are a lot of debates among historians of of, of 
19th century Europe and Marx, to what extent, you know, he did or did not sort of espouse democratic politics or understand the importance of democracy. But I mean, I think that uh, that quote kind of exemplifies the extent to which, especially in understanding transatlantic politics, he really did see how universal suffrage, even if it, you know, from, in our understanding, you know, was still adult and mostly white male suffrage, um, could produce uh, openings for uh, genuinely social, for, 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 you know, for political and even social radicalism. Uh, and so, you know, I don't, I don't see that as a shot at Lincoln in particular. You know, I don't think Marx would have been, um, you know, would have been tearing down the statues. Um, but, um, but I think uh, what Lincoln represents for Marx uh, is something that is very different from what Lincoln might represent for, you know, uh, lots of other Americans. Um, not a towering individual genius who, you know, uh, you know, or a kind of, um, you know, spectacular kind of political operator uh, who fused a kind of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, um, individually, individual morality with a kind of political shrewdness. I mean, I think, you know, basically Lincoln gets high marks for me on all those kind of standard measures too, in a lot of ways. But what makes him significant for Marx, and I think in, in, in this essay too, is the extent to which he is born and buffeted and, and part of, but ultimately uh, only part of a larger movement uh, against slavery that took shape in democratic politics, uh, in American democratic politics that was um, defined by its opposition to slavery. And uh, without that movement beginning in the 1850s and not originally led by Lincoln at all, um, you know, we wouldn't, you know, Lincoln's presidency and the Civil War itself is unimaginable. So um, that that opening in the 1850s is kind of the, the breakthrough against the kind of pre-existing antebellum party system and the slaveholders regime um, is in some ways the the critical moment that uh, that this essay is exploring in the in the in those years in the 1850s, and in some ways I, I would say also at our moment in history um, the kind of portion of this story that um, maybe we should be most interested in um, because we haven't really you know attained that breakthrough yet uh, you know but maybe I'm jumping the gun. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that in a second, but first just to. St- stick with uh, the story of the development of the anti-slavery movement. I mean, can you just go over that process of uh, anti-slavery becoming a mass politics and what that had to do with the Republican Party? I mean, for me, what has always been fascinating about this period is uh, the, the the process of, of taking a, an extreme minoritarian position, which was abolitionism, and making it into... Uh, you know, into a mass politics, and as you emphasize in your in this uh, essay, uh, not you know, it becomes the central issue of you know that the all of American politics are are hinging around, uh, and that is you you argue that that was done basically through uh, you know first abolitionist agitation, and then the, the way that that abolitionism becomes fused to the Republican Party. So just talk about that 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 uh, process of, of the development of anti-slavery as mass politics. Yeah, the, the mass element is important because you're right. It's not, It's I think often, uh, even Micah, your own gloss of it, I think um, um, you get at the way in which I think many Americans are accustomed to thinking about abolition or the politics of anti-slavery, if they think about it at all, um, is as a kind of, uh, as, a, as a desperate, hounded, kind of minoritarian movement that rose against a complacent and or, you know, criminal society uh, and was, you know, kind of, you know, 
often met enormous resistance from not just institutional and establishment forces, but even from ordinary citizens and only kind of heroic individuals of courage, you know, kind of like a, a William Lloyd Garrison or a Frederick Douglass could, could stand against it. And I think that pretty much accurately describes abolitionism in the 1830s. Um, but I think what's, what's interesting is the transformation from the 30s to the 50s and the moment in the 50s when it actually explodes into a, into a mass politics where you have um, – there's a great line by the um, – Actually, I think it might be the uh, right now. It's a tentative title for the for the book I'm trying to write about. This there's a a a, um, a, uh, a black female editor of a newspaper, uh, slave emigre newspaper in Canada. The Canadians Canada's Lower Ontario's black community was largely uh, African Americans who'd moved uh, into British North America and in in across the early 19th century. And this woman, Marianne Shad Carey, was an editor of a paper up there. And she was not uh, actually a champion of of the party of Lincoln or in any sense. But she has a great line about, um, uh, let me just get it right. She talks about this transformation. She says, instead of a handful of abolitionists from motives of humanity, the world beholds millions of abolitionists from necessity. And I think that's the that's the that's that kind of transformation that she's getting at, which, you know, um, when the anti-slavery movement in the 50s was able to convince mil- literally millions of ordinary northerners that uh, the threat of the slave power and ultimately the threat of slavery itself threatened not just not, didn't just outrage their moral principles, although that was an important part of Republican anti-slavery. They never abandoned the moral argument against slavery, um, but they fused it to a kind of material politics and the way in which they made the case successfully that the slave power threatened not just the the, the moral principles, but the but the actual uh, livelihoods of uh, northern voters. Um, so you know we can talk about the specific ways they did that. Uh, you know the threat of slaveholding settlement of the West and the um, you know the slaveholding dominance over the land as opposed to a Homestead Act, which would uh, you know give away land to landless. Uh, American citizens. Uh, obviously, again, this is all mixed up with the process of um, settler colonialism and the conquest of the of, of of North America over its indigenous inhabitants, which, you know, I think is an important story. But um, but uh, and uh, but but not 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 what I'm focusing on in this piece. Um, but also the ways in which the slave power threatened um, uh, threatened northern northerners' material interests by essentially dominating the. Uh, apparatus of the executive uh, branch and the political and the and the the, the federal government uh, as a tiny minority. Um, you know, William Seward, who's probably the most important um, pre-Lincoln Republican political figure, uh, compared literally. He didn't do a Bernie Sanders accent, but he compared. Um, he he went through the math and said, you know, uh, not one hundredth person, not one one hundredth of the uh, 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 of. Of, of the United States, uh, slaveholders compose not one one hundredth part of the United States. About three hundred thousand slaveholders in a in a country of thirty million, and you know it literally was an antebellum one percent that dominated the federal government, that set its set its land policy, its infrastructure policy, its trade policy, all sorts of uh, economic structures that uh, that favored the slaveholding regime and undermined the material well being of you know you know northern uh, northerners from Michigan to Pennsylvania to Maine. 
and um, uh, and and they made the Republicans were able to make that case and connect it to the criminality and in in many cases the sin uh, for them of slavery. Uh, and it was a really powerful moral material fusion that inspired not just the handful of abolitionists who were already there in effect uh, morally, but uh, masses of, uh, of of small farmers, workers. Um, and uh, ordinary Northerners uh, all, all across uh, all across the country. Yeah. So as a follow up to that, I mean, that's one of the most fascinating pieces of your article for me because obviously abolitionism was the morally correct position to take, but uh, it's hard to build. You you kind of need more than than the being correct morally in order to build a. Uh, a political, uh, you know, a, co- a political coalition that can actually win stuff in politics, and so you 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 talk about that a lot in the piece about uh, going beyond, or I guess I shouldn't say beyond. It's a fusion, as you just said. There was like both the moral case, but the Republican Party's kind of genius was its ability to also bring in uh, uh, policies that would have a tangible impact on people's lives that could wed them to. Uh, this this coalition that that had anti-slavery at its core, right? Which is, I mean, we, we these this is a kind of political question that we're still wrestling with all the time, right? I mean, you know, some people would read you talking about that and and read into that, seeing you know uh, the, the the constant arguments we're still having about like should we be appealing to like racist working class white people as part of a progressive coalition, like. It, it, you know, should should we be, uh, you know, pro- telling these people that, that we can give them me- Medicare for all and try to win them over on Medicare for all when when they're actually like morally corrupt? You know, th- there's there's all kinds of questions that that uh, raises for our, our current politics. But but yeah, just talk a little bit more about about that process of like fusing uh, the moral case for abolitionism with this self-interest of like n- white Northern voters. Yeah. Yeah. A couple things to say there. I think first thing is to say, so I, I did kind of talk about the, the policies that you could say, even though that wasn't, that's kind of an anachronistic term, but basically the policies that Republicans offered alongside a- anti-slavery as in the homestead, you know, the homestead act to sort of give away land, the, you know, tariffs that in there, you know, as they argued would protect the wages of Northern workers, uh, infrastructure to kind of develop, um, uh, railroads and and so on to develop, uh, you know, uh, northern cities and towns, um, and uh, you know, they Republicans and 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 their political allies were also involved in politics of kind of you know public education, et cetera, et cetera. And this expanded. You could see versions of the kind of Republicans as a party of what you might call public goods um, showed up in many years later in Reconstruction too, uh, with the establishment of hospitals and the sort of the beginnings of even a sort of a primitive welfare state in uh, in in. In the, in the Reconstruction South, um, both white and black Republicans were involved in that. Uh, you know, obviously the party takes a lot of ideological turns since, but that's an element of it. But in some ways, I think that's subordinate to the kind of policy. I mean, one one point of the piece that I think is is worth um, is is worth meditating on, and for our moment too, is that in some ways the, the formal policy. Uh, of the Republican Party mattered less than the kind of the, than the political spirit that it called forth. There's a great line from uh, William Seward um, uh, that uh, that I let me try to let me try to find this um, that he. Uh, you know, that he he underlines, he says, you know, uh, political political parties are not defined by their pledges or platforms, but the temper of the people when they call it into activity. And for Republicans, 
um, that temper was an anti was a fundamentally anti-slavery temper. And that's what defined them, not their particular policy, because, you know, for instance, they were not for immediate abolition. They were for the restriction of slavery uh, of slave states and the kind of confinement of slavery. But they understood that to be a part of a process of ultimate abolition. And they were very unambiguous about that being the the final goal, you know, from Link Seward to Lincoln to dozens of others, uh, that being the formal goal. And fundamentally, through their their politics, that is a mixture of their rhetoric and their practice, basically, uh, uh, they 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 embraced a, a really a fundamentally kind of I, I would call it a populist uh, and an anti anti elitist kind of politics that that labeled the slave power as a kind of property class uh, was one of Seward's phrases. Um, you know, that was a, that was a 1%, as I've said, that was a kind of tyrannical aristocracy that dominated the average, you know, working, working family. Um, and, uh, and in that sense, um, the temper of the party was sufficiently kind of revolutionary and bubbling up from below. Um, you know, they had you know, in some ways, this was a thing that was happening in antebellum America anyway, but um, n- rarely was such a hard ideological edge to it. But, you know, they took part in mass rallies. You know, they brought 20,000 people to towns like, um, you know, uh, you know, Massillon, Ohio, Ohio and Beloit, Wisconsin, these tiny towns of like two or 3,000 people. You know, they sucked in, you know, half the countryside uh, to come to these massive rallies to hear slavery denounced. And in some ways, it was the, that popular spirit directed against this slaveholding class that convinced Southerners, uh, you know, I quote Jefferson Davis in here, um, and pretty much all the Southerners, you know, talking about their reasons for succeeding, seceding is it, it's not so much that they fear Lincoln's policy agenda, but they fear the, the, the public mind of the North, which has been transformed through these politics to oppose. And, and at, once that's happened, the policy will not in inevitably follow. I don't want to say that, but the policy is fungible and is open-ended. And so you can't simply say, well, it didn't say on their platform that they're going to do this, so they won't do this. Likewise, you can't say that, well, they did say they would do this, so they absolutely will do that. And I, I think that that's something worth thinking about when we try to assess, uh, you know, frankly, I think that's a, I, I use like Seward's rule as a way to think about politics today. What is the temper of the people that they call forth? And I think that's worth thinking about for different, you know, it, you know, to, to warp again into the 21st century for to when, when, when we're trying to sort of make sense of different factions within the Democratic Party or different um, electoral struggles today. I think the program sometimes needs to is 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 no more important than the politics. And so often I think less important. I mean, that's why I found Bernie so inspiring, obviously, because he had uh, not only the program that everybody knows and loves, but he had uh, this kind of populist anti-elite politics that, you know, uh, I think Bosker Sankar has called it, you know, uh, class struggle social democracy. That was not just, OK, we want these things, but we want them through sustained confrontation with the elites that have not given them to us. And I think the, the anti-slavery Republican Party shared that spirit um, uh, in, in its struggle against the, the slaveholding class. Another, I guess, another similarity between the Bernie Sanders campaign and what you're talking about with the Republican Party in this era is that Bernie's campaign obviously appealed to the material self-interest of millions of people. But at the same time, especially in the second campaign, you started to hear this slogan emerge. Are you are you willing to fight for someone you don't know? So, again, it's sort of fusing this kind of um, moral appeal to solidarity with the appeal to material self-interest. Um, but switching gears, switching gears slightly, you know, the left is never 
a monolith and its strategy never springs forth fully formed. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of the debates that transpired within the abolitionist movement about how broad to make the coalition, how broad was too broad, what demands to fuse with the demand to end slavery? I think that those debates probably have resonance for our political situation today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one way to tell the story and the way the story has often been told is, um, and this relates to what I just said, I guess, about politics and policy um, and why, for me, I think this inversion uh, is really important, that in some ways politics is at least as important or more important than policy. Because one way to tell the story of the anti-slavery movement from the 1830s to 1860, in a way it's often been told, is a sort of a declension narrative in which the radicals continually lose out to the so-called moderates. That's 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 a way that um, um, certain historians of abolition have told the story, that you had uncompromising radicals like Garrison and uh, like Douglas in his first incarnation as a Garrisonian, um, who uh, denounced not just slavery, but participation in any politics under the Constitution, which was a covenant, you know, with death. Um uh, and, and, you know, upheld uh, the sort of righteous, immediate abolition uh, as their only kind of demand. And what, what you saw as the movement entered politics uh, and in its transition to sort of mass politics, those demands definitely shifted and became um, uh, what, what brought the Republican Party together was um, uh, the, the demand uh, on slavery was um, – was I think in the in the minds of uh, the radicals who really organized the party in the beginning in 1854 after the Kansas Nebraska Act, and we can get into the weeds of the 1850s, uh, but maybe 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 we, we don't need to do that right now. But I think for the for a lot of the the political abolitionists essentially who um, started the Republican Party, people like Joshua Giddings and and Charles Sumner, um, who had moved from in some ways from abolition into uh, electoral politics. Um, the, 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 the search was, um, the, the coalescence in the 1850s, Salmon Chase, another really important figure was, uh, around a political demand that could maximally threaten slavery while also maximally winning this mass base, the, the power behind the throne, as Frederick Douglass called it. And if you don't activate that mass base, then you can't actually credibly threaten slavery, no matter how radical your demands are. So, um, uh, I would argue against this idea that like Republican, that anti-slavery gradually became corrupted and, you know, sort of by entering political, the, you know, the political process, its demands attenuated and it kind of ultimately became, I mean, if Lincoln had been elected and the South didn't secede and Lincoln just sort of, you know, said a few mean things about slavery, but everyone just kind of lived, everyone just kumbaya for the next 50 years and slavery, you know, persisted into the 20th century, we wouldn't be celebrating this as a political revolution, you know? Um, but I think it's, so for me, the the history of the 1860s is what explains um, the what was really going on in the 1850s and that this movement towards the superficial moderation uh, that actually brought in millions without moderating its politics, uh, even as its you know formal demands uh, were adjusted to sort of capture a majority in politics. Um, uh, to me, uh, that that's not a moderation or a declension, but in, in some ways, fundamentally, a radicalization. Because a radicalization, you know, what what is radical? It's to change things from the root. And how do you how do you do that? You need, uh, as uh, Marianne Shad Carey said, you need millions, not handfuls. And yeah, I mean, the Republican experience, I think, shows this. And, and this speaks to this perpetual uh, debate that happens on the left of like is getting involved in electoral politics at all going to mean a watering down of our program or 
uh, you know, engaging with a, a bourgeois party like the Democrats going to do that. And, uh, you know, th- those debates never cease. You you talk about the, the, the Republican Party as the sort of the vehicle through which this this radical demand gets expressed and that it actually serves uh, deepen radical politics in the country rather than somehow uh, tamping it down. And you make the point, which is maybe an obvious point to people who know a lot about the Civil War, but I mean, I, I have to admit that I hadn't really thought about this. Like the Civil War came about uh, once the the party, the Republican Party that had made anti-slavery the central issue of its pl- of of its you know of its platform and just of its like raison d'etre, uh, it, it was their winning of the White House that then led to the secession and thus the Civil War. So like without the uh, the ascension of the Republican Party running as it did only on anti-slavery, uh, we don't get to the point where there's the Civil War and then eventually this radical emancipation of the slaves, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that that's right. And thinking about it in that in international comparative context, I think only undermine, uh, underlined that, that, that point that in pretty much every other history of, of emancipation in the Atlantic world came about either through armed rebellion in the case of Haiti or through, in the, through part of an anti-colonial revolution, which was often triggered by some totally other issue that was not triggered by slavery, as in, say, the northern states, um, you know, which, which uh, you know, in, in, instituted gradual abolition you know, in the aftermath of the American Revolutionary War, but only in the only after the war had sort of shaken the timbers of pre-existing colonial society. And the war was not fought initially over anti-slavery, obviously. Um, uh, same thing in the South American states, same thing uh, um, nearly everywhere else. Um, there, there was there were simply no other examples of, a, of an anti-slavery party using mass democratic electoral politics to win command of the state uh, you know, and essentially, I mean, they use this term all the time, topple the slave power politically. And then uh, and then obviously that is accelerated by the the slaveholding decision to kind of to, to secede and to sort of fight militarily. Um, it's possible that a, that a slaveholding class with, um, you know, that, that wasn't so arrogant and overweening, um, you know, would have accepted this compromise and tried to like, you know, uh, play defense instead of offense. But I think what what makes the Republicans so radical is that they overthrew a slaveholding class that was precisely that powerful, that whose faith in its own capacity and its own significance for the for world history was so powerful that they that they chose to secede rather than submit to this alternative uh, political arrangement which threatened the source of their power. So. Um, in that sense, it, it it underlines the extent to which this was, in, in so many ways, a uh, an unlikely, you know, despite other kinds of you know kind of Marxist teleologies about um, about you know you know slavery is backward and you know wage labor capitalism inevitably bulldozing its way across the nineteenth century. I think all of those teleologies are subject to uh, really complex political con- con- conjunctures, which have contingent outcomes. And I think, um, you know, the 1850s was one place in which things could have gone any number of different ways. And I don't have a, a sense that Republicans were riding the crest of some sort of inevitable historic moment that would produce the civil war in this moment. Um, obviously, I do think that there would have been some reckoning with history and global force, with slavery and global forces over the course of the next hundred years, but that it would happen in this form, in the, with this kind of radicalism, with this speed, with this lack of compensation that would produce the democratic 
you know, the, the democratic revolutions of those of the Reconstruction Amendments that would produce, um, you know, the enfranchisement of, of black soldiers into the army, uh, et cetera. None of that was like foretold at all in the 1850s. I realize I didn't answer Megan's question about fights within the Republican Party. I don't know um, that I, I, I don't know if we want to come back to that so much, but uh, there were there were plenty of them. Um, there were debates about how far to push that radical edge. Um, especially in the election of 1860. And one, again, this is where my book research is still ongoing. So I'm going to be tentative rather than definitive about this because I haven't really written the late 1850s chapters yet. Um, But I think one one narrative you hear is that Republicans pulled back from 1856 to 1860 in order to kind of win more moderate votes, that they, even without changing their platform, that they moderated their tone. I'm skeptical of this narrative for the same reason I'm skeptical of a lot of these narratives that um, about the declension of anti-slavery, about moderation as opposed to radicalism. So I'm I'm expe- I'm personally skeptical that uh, that there was a significant pullback within uh, Republican forces. I mean, my feeling is that this party throughout up until up, all through the Civil War era, the, the the Republican mainstream, there were factions, there was a kind of mo- a much more moderate faction, and there was a bleeding edge radical faction. But my, my, my understanding is that the center of gravity in the Republican Party, and Jim Oakes does a good job of showing this in his book about wartime emancipation, the center of gravity in the Republican Party was envisioned the end of slavery and never compromised on that. Historians probably hate it when people do this, but I'm just going to ask you to talk about a historical incident and read it directly onto our own moment you think i hate that <laughs> uh, maybe you don't hate that i feel like a lot of historians hate like it's somehow that's like all i do that's why <laughs> that's, it's, that's probably why a lot of historians would, like gordon wood would hate me oh that's that's, okay. that's why you're a contributing editor at jack and Matt, is because you're willing to do that uh you have a section near the end of the essay uh about um uh this section called slaves and republicans where you, t- you ask a question, was it pure coincidence that the largest slave insurrection panic in antebellum American history arrived just weeks after the first Republican election campaign in the late fall of 1856? And in that section, you talk about uh, slave revolts kicking off around uh, elections of uh, Republicans and, and including uh, around the election of Lincoln, uh, which, you know, that's a the, to read it onto our directly onto our current moment. I mean, Megan and I talk a lot and others in Jacobin talk a lot about the role of the Bernie campaign in it's not one to one in spurring incidents of militancy. But uh, as, as you ask, is it pure coincidence uh, that there are, you know, that, that you have somebody on the national political stage who injected a, a radical politics uh, into our debate, and then you have other uh, incidents of, you know, of, of working class militancy kicking off. Um, it, it's it's not like Bernie caused any of those things directly, but like there's certainly a kind of uh, mood of militancy that is being sort of encouraged through the use of. Uh, electoral politics and through through you know a, a presidential campaign. I mean, yeah, I mean the, the slam dunk case for that was. I mean, there was a b- extremely strong case, obviously that um, you know the Jacobins made about the the teacher strikes and so on in the aftermath of the first campaign. Um, and and I, I, I mean, I think our, the future here is still unwritten, but I think absolutely the the presence of Sanders over the course of these whole fi- all of these five years and the presence of his of his, not just his ideas, but his kind of style of politics, um, you know, gaining, you know, mainstream attention. Definitely, 
You know, obviously it wasn't, and this is another subject, it wasn't enough in the context of the Democratic primary to rally a majority behind behind him at the ballot box. But I think I think you're right to make connections between um, between the, the way that electoral politics can at least potentially open up for more militant uh, militant actions. I mean, the slave the slave rebellion case is interesting because that's still more suggestive than research, and I, that's still part of the the 1860 is really the strongest case. And I don't think we're going to get. I, I have more work to do, but I don't think we're going to get a definitive answer on on how real these insurrection scares were. Um, but I think at the very minimum, they demonstrate the way in which um, this is another element that I think is really important in, 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 in for contemporary politics. The way in which you have, in some ways, you have to read the significance of your own movement through how your opposition fears you, right? And I think what one way that the Republican movement um, demonstrated uh, demonstrated its radicalism to me is the way in which slaveholders, you know, loathed and abhorred and were terrified by it. And even if, um, which I'm not entirely convinced, but even if we were to stipulate that these panics and these insurrection scares were entirely dreamt up by slaveholders, that would still already demonstrate to some extent that, um, and there's evidence that they weren't, but but just say that, that that would already demonstrate that Republicans had transformed the political consciousness of the moment such that their their most, you know, hated opponents, the, the slaveholders themselves, were panicking about the possibilities of the genie getting out of the bottle. And I think, I mean, I think that's something that Bernie, um, you know, this is where, you know, we could talk about different formations of left politics, but this is where I feel like, you know, when, when you're trying to assess what is the, what the, does a certain movement or a certain political campaign have the potential to to challenge, to meaningfully challenge the status quo? I do think you need to be aware of to what extent your opponents fear you and oppose you and or to what extent they're actually kind of quite a, quite easily able to co-opt um, what you're doing and what you're saying without challenging their power in any way, which is this is really crude, but that is more or less what happened in the British case, to go back to Megan's question at the beginning, where, you know, British anti-slavery was obviously a significant thing for the West Indies, you know, and was and was transformative in its own way, but was accomplished without any actually diminution of ruling class power in Britain at all or any real convulsion. Um, there were other convulsions in, in, in Britain across the early 19th century, but the achievement of abolition, uh, you know, obviously it's a different context. There are colonies, you're talking about overseas colonies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the achievement of that, uh, of the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833 did not portend um, the transformation of the British ruling class in the way that Lincoln's election did uh, in the United States. So I think that's something to think about when we think about politics going forward. Um, what what political movements and energies challenge, you know, our most bitter opponents and which ones actually do they feel quite capable of, of, of scooping up and kind of adding to their own lunch bucket, which does not threaten them. So the protests today, which we should probably turn to um, against, uh, you know, not only against the murder of George Floyd, but certainly um, broader anti-racist protests, the protests against police violence, they're they're really multiracial. I mean, strikingly so, which has prompted a lot of debate on the left about 
racial leadership and the role of white people. And this uh, makes me want to ask you, and I know that you're going to do a stay at home series about this, to describe who the wide awakes were and what was their demographic makeup and what did, what did it matter that you had this um, group of young white men mostly in the mix as radicals against slavery and sort of potentials for multiracial solidarity against racism? The wide awakes are a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, I, you know, maybe it's maybe the reason Bernie lost is that we didn't have one of those, you know, and, uh, you know, we didn't have like a marching army with capes and, 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 you know, not enough capes, basically. <laughs> that was the downfall. Um, but yeah, this is a really militant and primarily um, working class, or you could call it lower middle class organization, you know, composed of wage workers, small, you know, mostly urban, but not entirely. Um, you know, this is for a party that was primarily rural, um, but uh, whose base was primarily rural, but the wide awakes, the militants um, um, congealed in lots of northern cities where, you know, lots of, you know, younger, absolutely younger um, younger men, mostly white men, although there were some, there were, there was a detachment of black wide awakes in Boston too, um, uh, essentially served as the kind of marching vanguard for the Republican campaign in 1860 and had uniforms and had, um, and, 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 and often did, did street battle with democratic street gangs or democratic party, um, you know, affiliates, uh, in, in, in places like Indiana and Ohio, um, and, you know, had developed a whole kind of militant internal culture. I mean, some of this is definitely about the politics of masculinity in mid-19th century America and a kind of, and this, you know, some historians have connected, you know, the wider wakes to the kind of martial culture that then produced the Civil War in which politics got translated into physical violence very quickly. Um, there are obviously some things about it that are, you know, that are, that are, that, you know, are troubling. And there are, and there are other instances of, you know, this is, this is primarily, as you said, a group of, of 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 um of white men that were not always the most racially inclusive, despite the fact that there were black white awakes. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why you know uh, it's a complicated case, but I think um, but I think ultimately what they represent was the extent to which the Republican anti slave anti slavery politics had touched had reached. Uh, an audience much larger than the old school, than the traditional moralistic abolitionists and had fired up, you know, a, a broader base of millions that then, and, and what you do when you attain that kind of mass political penetration with, you know, your ideas or your politics, you, you see not just, um, uh, not just breadth in terms of, you know, uh, ballots cast, but uh, militant, militant movements that are created. So I think, I mean, it's connecting that to the protest now, it's, it's, it's complicated because I mean, the wider wakes were so, um, you know, laser like focused on this electoral campaign, you know, and they didn't really persist after the election, you know, you know, in some ways they probably just went right into the union army, but the, 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 it was so, it was, it was attached to a particular campaign rather than, um, the slightly, I would say the much more amorphous caricature character of the current protests and whose demands, you know, shift based on context, um, and are, um, and are at this point kind of unmoored from a national political, um, um, you know, certainly a national political organization, like, uh, let alone, a, let alone a, a political party. So, um, you know, in that sense, it's, it's complicated, but I do think that, um, but I think, I think what it does say is that mass politics gets you, this is to Micah's point too, I guess, mass politics doesn't get you just numbers of votes. It also gets you to some extent militancy. Uh, your article is obviously about the 
end of slavery uh and it's talking about the, the sort of mass it's called the mass politics of anti-slavery but i guess uh it, it makes me just want to ask the the kind of classic question to you that is debated by uh you know civil war era historians for decades at this point which is uh who freed the slaves how would you answer that question in a sort of very succinct way given your analysis in in this piece sorry i don't do succinct uh <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that is a, I mean, that's the question. I mean, to be honest, I don't love that question. I, I will try to answer it, but I have to preface it with a lame disclaimer because in some ways I think that question actually was framed by a lot of people who want to then produce uh, an answer, a simplistic answer. In fact, and you know, I say, God bless him. Jim McPherson wrote an essay called who freed the slaves. And the last answer, the last sentence of that article, I love teaching it is Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. That's just literally the only sentence. That, that's how it ends. And I was like, you have to give the man credit. He asks a historical question. He doesn't problematize. He doesn't complicate. He doesn't do a dialectic. He answers the fucking question, okay? So- You're, you're, um, you're just always doing dialectics, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas I've got my hands waving. I'm all over the place. Um, I think- I mean, I think I would say the anti-slavery movement freed the slaves and that would be but that would include um, anti-slavery politicians, anti-slavery voters, the Union Army, which became an armed wing of that movement. And, of course, the slaves themselves who both took part in the Union Army and destabilized the system of slavery on the ground in relation to the war. But I think you can't. You, you you can't uh, – other answers like that are um, – I think a lot of the other answers are actually pretty ahistorical. I think Abraham Lincoln is an ahistorical answer because it's like, like literally like they're trying to find a line of transmission to, well, Lincoln wrote this document and that empowered the army to do this. And so that – it's like they're trying to solve it like it's an engineering problem. And same thing I think for people who say the slaves freed themselves because that's also insufficient because, yes, in a lot of cases, a certain – you know you know – that, you know, millions of or hundreds of thousands of slaves just did free themselves. And if you just follow those cases, you'd say, okay, that happened and that brought the system of slavery down. But if you're actually trying to give a historical answer to this question, not an engineering answer, um, I think you have to think about what were the forces and movements and, uh, uh, yeah, his, what were the historical forces that brought a situation about in which the slaves could be freed. And that's where, why I would say, not, not the abolitionists narrowly, but I would say the broad anti-slavery movement, W.B. Du Bois called it the abolition democracy, which ultimately joined, um, you know, the masses of voters at the North with, um, with, uh, with slaves in the South. And I think that's the, that's the coalition that freed the slaves. Yeah. And what's useful about your article is the way that it, it, it focuses on each of those pieces of the anti-slavery movement, which include the slaves themselves, you know, as we were just talking about the, uh, the, their own insurrections, but those insurrections were often, uh, stoked by the, uh, the organizing of the Republican party. So it's like, there's this complex interplay between all of these things. And you, and you, you, it, it, that, that building of that, uh, movement that includes Abraham Lincoln, that includes the slaves themselves, that includes the Republican Party, that includes the wide awakes, all of it, all has to come together in order to actually free the slaves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, not to be polemical or something, but like it to 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 say that the slaves freed themselves entirely is to say that all of the other slaves that did not free themselves chose in other points in history, in other countries, in other moments, in in other rebellions that failed, to say that the slaves failed to free themselves every day that they were slaves, which is insane because this is a 
overwhelming system of power and oppression that made the individual will to free oneself almost irrelevant. So um, in terms of challenging the system of slavery. So obviously that resistance was a necessary uh, ingredient, but not sufficient. You needed, as you need now, a larger political movement to uh, to challenge that something that's that powerful. So in, in the post-Bernie moment, there is a small but vocal contingent of people on the left who I think were never particularly keen on electoral politics to begin with, who are now very eager, I think, to declare that electoral politics has had its day in the sun, uh, it failed, you know, moving on. I don't agree with that uh, perspective. Micah doesn't agree with that perspective. And I know that you don't. But I, I wonder what the sort of lessons from the history of uh, anti-slavery, the anti-slavery movement can teach us about the utility of electoral politics. Yeah, I mean, I... We talked about this. Marx talked about it in the in the in the quote that you read about the opportunities that a that a even a bourgeois democratic um, you know political structure uh, can have for 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 radical politics. Actually, I think I quoted uh, Engels at a certain point. Um, you know, talking about the the um, the the formation of the you know the SPD in Germany uh, in the and I guess it's I always get my internationals confused the second international or uh, is that right God damn it Bosker's gonna I'll be humiliated um, but basically the you know the electoralism of the German socialists in the late 19th century and the early 20th century you know by the end of his life Engels said you know this is as radical as as storming any barricade and I think I, I do think that is the right way we have to look at is electoral politics, you know, something the left should be a part of it? It's a contextual question. Obviously, there are some cases where, you know, it's not the only tool or the only context in which the left can forge ahead. Obviously, labor organization, you know, is, is you know, is probably the only thing that the left, I think, can never get ahead without. Um, but, um, but, 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 but I think there's obviously, you know, you know, kind of street politics and sometimes armed politics are also a part of the, the, the picture. But I think, you know, in our moment, it seems obvious to me that electoral politics are part of the context right now. And actually, I kind of feel, I mean, I don't know where, where you, where you guys are in, in your circles, um, in this moment, but I kind of feel like that anti-electoral argument does not have much steam behind it, especially given the the local victories that um, have been, you know, have, you know, that either some combination of the protests or the, you know, the kind of um, actually ongoing Bernie energy concentrated in, in some areas or just the broader forces in our moment have produced. I mean, just here in New York, um, we're still waiting for the absentee ballots, but it looks really good for a lot of the local candidates here. Um, um, who are running on a, you know, on an openly socialist platform. So I think, I think to say that, oh, because Bernie lost, you know, electoralism is a dead end is, is I don't, I don't actually feel like that argument is, is, is going to get very far in the next, in, in the next moment. I, th- I think in some ways, the harder question is what do we do with the post Bernie progressive wing of the democratic party? And in, in national politics, and and I'm not necessarily talking about the squad here, but the kind of you know the sort of ongoing contingent of you could call them you know Warren Democrats or kind of you know progressive Democrats who who, who espouse many of the same um, you know uh, 
principles and, pl- and and pledges in the Bernie platform, but are in in obvious ways, I think, to all three of us, and I think to many, maybe many listeners, in some fundamental way different politically than what the Sanders campaign represented. And I think figuring out how you know DSA or how uh, Jacobin will relate to those kinds of forces, um, which which I think are 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 riding high at the moment in the Democratic Party. Um, uh, is is going to be a challenge for the next in the in the in the short term and in the medium term. Um, to what extent you know there you know we see um, we see you know these these progressives as as allies. To what extent we see them as rivals. To what extent we see them as um, as uh, as distinct from from you know what democratic socialists want and the kind of politics we want. Well, you're the historian, Matt. Is there anything we can? Uh... You know, was there any kind of equivalent in the in the era of the 1850s and 1860s that the Republican Party had to deal with? I mean, and not really. I mean, they, they, they did have the advantage of kind of having their party, which is a thing that, you know, actually, as you know, some of my like more ultra friends will actually still accept some a lot of my arguments about the Republican Party, but then say, but they had their own party. They weren't just like progressive Whigs. And that that's that's a fair point that, you know, our context is different. And I don't think. Personally, I actually don't think a third party right now is anywhere close to the to the right answer in terms of the strength of the so-called of the of the socialist left, certainly in this country. Um, I don't think we are at the point that anti-slavery forces were in the 1850s when the Whig Party was essentially melting down over this and divided over this huge national controversy about the expansion of slavery. The Democratic Party unfortunately, is not dividing. Um, so for the foreseeable future, we still have to work within this complex organ, this, you know, um, this, this complex and often shitty, um, under the auspices of this shitty party and, and figuring out our relationship to different wings and factions within that and tendencies within that party is, is complicated. I mean, I would say, I guess I'm coming back, I'm going to be a broken record, but I'm going to go back to that Seward line. Um, you know, he's my, he's my, you know, guide through this, through this, um, through this dark forest, I guess. But like, for for progressives, I would say, to what extent does you know the the temple of the the temper of the people that they call forth? So for people, for instance, one example is you know maybe this is a slam dunk for the uh, you, you know your listeners, but um, you know people who are starting to get excited about like Biden is actually smuggling in all these progressive ideas. Biden has a chance to be you know far more progressive than than you know than anyone could have hoped, and you know he's going to be far to the left of Obama, and he has the leftmost platform. Like blah blah blah. Like to me, that's an I mean, you don't need William Seward to tell you that that's that there are so many reasons why the temper, the spirit of the people that Biden has called forth is actually all about just returning to the status quo and is not going to proceed with. There's no reason to believe that 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 the, that a Biden led um, the forces that propelled Biden to victory and a Biden led administration is going to pursue anything like that. I don't think many socialists are going to be seduced by Bidenism, though. So maybe that's not really the most vital question. Um, but I think but I think trying to figure out how to how to as we think about other political movements that are going to arise in, you know, in the next two, four, six years, what kind of politics are they? Are they grounded in a politics that challenges the corporate power structure or that already is basically seeking to um, not even just compromise with it, but basically work through it, which seems to be the impulse of a lot of um, progressives in in the current Democratic Party that um, find a lot of common ground with, you know, foundations, um, 
philanthropic philanthropic capitalism and uh, and sometimes even Fortune 500 companies. Um, and, and and to me, that's not only is it that a dead end, that's actually a tendency that has to be, um, you know, beaten back. Well, and you talk about the Whig meltdown over slavery and the emergence of the Republican Party. And I think that's an interesting cognate because we're not in a situation where we can create our, our, our own party whole cloth right now. And I think that Mike and I agree with you that it would be somewhat suicidal to attempt to do that, given um, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But it, the, in that history is perhaps an interesting lesson about um, pushing a politics to the fore that actually, as leftists would say, heightens the contradictions and then right. creates um, new political alliances in a new political scenario. And like that, to me, is the great value of the Bernie Sanders campaign is that it was able to push a politics of, you know, a, a broad coalitional politics of economic equality to the fore that actually um, at least started to cause a little bit of a, a meltdown in the Democratic Party. Of course, that meltdown wasn't complete. The party was able to recover some sense of coherence and ultimately beat us back. But it almost to me, instead of saying, well, you know, we had we had our moment, we blew it, let's move on and find a new strategy. I think we should actually be looking for um, the uh, the promising signs of uh, troublemaking yeah. in the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns and actually trying to replicate that as much as possible. And sort of uh, another metaphor would be to like, uh, you know, find the cracks and then use a sort of crowbar to pry them open as much as possible, which might produce the scenar a scenario in which we could maybe eventually not be suicidal in pursuing our own party. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, what I, I mean, I would say, yeah, I mean, I, I would say in terms of the, the party question, yeah, I would kick that can pretty far down the road. But I would say the contradictions, uh, I'm with you 100 percent about about cracks and contradictions. And, you know, it's, it's hard to do that without a national figure, um, you know, in national politics. And because in some ways it's harder to make um it may, well, we'll see what happens. It may be, I, I suspect that it may be harder despite the sort of, you know, recent electoral success. I expect that it might be harder even through winning, you know, state legislative seats or congressional seats even um, uh, to, to sort of turn that into a, 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 a political force that, that heightens contradictions within the party. I certainly, certainly even if, you know, even if you were to say that there are six Democratic Socialist Congress people, or even if there were 16, you know, which is, which would be so many more than we have now, um, uh, would that really do it? Um, I'm not sure. And, and, but, but I think Megan, your instinct is right that like, it's about not necessarily like, we're not going to replicate Bernie exactly, but replicating the, um, the, the form of politics that drives those contradictions. It, it, what, I mean, I, I do think Medicare for all continues to be the central issue that they're going to really have a hard time co-opting um, and they're going to do everything they can to sort of lie. There. I, I think at this point, actually, it is really going to be, it seems likely that they're going to lie their way into saying they're doing it without doing it. Um, so that's going to get tricky if they can kind of finesse it enough. Um, but I think demanding... The, the demanding that the, the that Bernie platform, but those Bernie politics that uh, that are sort of simple, irreducible um, demands that that I think for the most part voters um, still will respond to and will not be willing to accept substitutes um, in the you know this election was one issue because it was dominated by Trump, but I think in general voters will still. Um, I think there's still a possibility that those kind of Medicare for all politics will appeal to voters over the heads of um, uh, 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 of, of political elites. Um, the question is how to do that without a without a national figure. But I think that will absolutely be in the mix. So last question. Uh, 
you know, you've emphasized some of the cause for optimism. We've talked about these mass protests that are happening that are obviously unlike anything we've ever seen in the United States. And we've got, you know, recent announcements of democratic socialists winning some local and state level and federal offices. But overall, you know, still in the, in the, with the pandemic and with the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign, things are pretty bleak. So what is your, uh, your one go-to historical moment of the civil war era to uh, pick yourself up off the ground and make yourself uh, feel better about the uh, the masses' ability to you know strike blows against the the evildoers, the the one percenters of whatever era. Yeah, I don't know. You mean you mean just as an inspirational, almost like movie scene to just to just play in your mind? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Look, I mean, I was just reading about this this morning. I do think um, I think I was just reading about the the twenty fifth um, the U.S. Army's twenty fifth Corps marching into Richmond you know, commanded by a German immigrant full of, uh, you know, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, U.S. colored troops on the morning, I think, of April 3rd, 1865, announcing the end of, you know, literally setting up setting up their field office in Jefferson Davis's, you know, personal home in Richmond uh, as the Confederacy fled ignobly. I mean, with the 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 um, removal of all these Confederate monuments in Richmond, it really is in some ways the case that the Confederacy is, you know, Richmond has finally fallen. Um, and so going back to that moment in, in April of 65 always, you know, warms the cockles of my heart. And, you know, what in some ways it raises other troubling questions of like, if the Confederacy culturally has fallen or is is actually about to fall, um, what does that victory get us and where, how, how can we use that? Uh, and, and, and what does that mean for our politics? But let's not go there. Let's just think about if, if to, to, to your question, Mike, if you're having the pandemic blues, just imagine, um, uh, those troops actually entering Richmond, putting out fires that had been set by the fleeing Confederate army who burned down more of their city than Sherman burned any city in South Carolina or Georgia, uh, Actually, putting down the fire, putting out the fires, uh, Richmond's black and and working class white population coming out to like welcome um, these black troops as conquering heroes, um, liberating heroes. Uh, that's a good moment. That's a great moment. Well, personally, I look forward to the the, the time when uh, you know. I'll join the New York City DSA in uh, sort of setting up camp in Jamie Dimon's liberated mansion on the Upper East Side or whatever. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. General Utrecht. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see it. I hope I hope I can, you know, I hope I can be, you know, a consultant to the uh, to the historical consultant to the uh, to the field office. Yeah. Well, Matt, thanks so much for talking to us. This has been great. All right. Good talking with you guys. 